Let me see. Am I on mute? No, I can hear you. Oh, good, good, good. Hi. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. Wonderful. Great. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Better than I was, I guess, the other day after the shot, the first shot. Diana Bander got her first shot of the COVID-19 vaccine in February at Brattleboro Memorial Hospital. So the location of where the the vaccination clinic was or is, is in the basement. It's a place where you don't normally see patients. You walk in and in this corridor, you see all these people waiting for the vaccination, 70, 75 and older, in wheelchairs, on walkers with canes. It brings tears to my eyes now as I tell you. It brought tears to my eyes. Diana got sick with COVID-19 last March, and she's still dealing with lingering symptoms. She said that's been a lonely battle. Getting the vaccine felt like returning to a collective experience. Getting this shot is a rite of passage. Hmm. A rite of passage as if you were turning 25 or getting married or having your first baby or turning 80 or something, getting the shot is a rite of passage. And here you have all these folks, I I have the chills when I tell you, waiting, people who've been sick like me or still are or lost people, lost loved ones. And we're all there with hope and anxiety. Rite of passage is is such an interesting way to describe it because you only call something a rite of passage that is sort of universal, right? That everybody goes through. Yeah. And this is, this is, I mean, across the country, across the world. For me, it was an emotional experience because we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's a year in, it's a year in. It was extraordinarily important and emotional. Diana said her experience with COVID has left her with a kind of trauma. And in some way, that's true for almost everyone. For some, it's been the illness itself. For others, it's the way their lives have changed. People have lost work, lost their homes. For people at higher risk of infection, the isolation has taken a toll. Plus, more than 200 Vermonters have died. It's been a year since the start of the pandemic, and in some ways, the end is in sight. The vaccine gives hope that some kind of normal life will start again soon. But it won't bring back everything we've already lost. And it won't heal all the trauma of the past year. We'll be right back. Just a quick message from our underwriters. Efficiency Vermont helps you reduce your heating bills by offering recommendations and rebates on weatherization projects, wood stoves, heat pumps, and more. Find qualified Efficiency Excellence Network contractors at efficiencyvermont.com slash contractor. Diana Bander said last March she was reading a lot about the coronavirus, but it still felt distant. I have a son with special needs. Um, he lives in Boston. He's 50. So I would be going to Boston regularly, almost every 10 days. I started feeling like I had allergies. And I mentioned this to a really wonderful body-mind person who's been helping me along the way for many, for a couple of years. 
And she said, Diana, I think you ought to call your primary care physician. So I called my doctor. He said, I, I think you ought to go get tested. I said, tested for what? He said, I, he said, I think you ought to get tested for the virus. I said, yeah, why? He said, well, we're setting up the first drive-through site in Putney at Landmark College. It's going to be open tomorrow morning. I think you should go. I got to Landmark at 10 of 7 in the morning. The National Guard had just arrived with camouflage trucks. They were setting up tents. And as far as I was concerned, this was all crazy. I, I don't, what, you know, the virus, what, why? She got the test. I drove out of Landmark College at 7 o'clock in the morning, down Route 5 into Brattleboro. I had COVID. I had no idea. Diana was taking care of her son at the time. Businesses were just beginning to shut down. So she went shopping for supplies. And then I get the phone call from a health department in Vermont. And I swore, I, I called the doctor and I used the F word. <laughs> he wrote it, it. I made him print out my chart. He said, the patient is angry. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I literally started getting very sick. I didn't have a high temp. I didn't have the lung stuff. But I have never felt so sick. I've never felt so sick. I couldn't smell. I couldn't taste. All I could do was lie in bed and have chills. I couldn't eat. I could, I, this little apartment that I'm living in has stairs. It was very hard for me to walk up and down the stairs. I've never been sick like that. What's going through your head as you're going through that? I was terrified. I kept coming into things around you know, existence and my age and is this how I'm going to die? And it, I was terrified. It was very frightening. Diana wasn't alone in feeling this way. About 800 Vermonters got COVID in the first wave last spring. But after a few months, Diana started to realize that some of her symptoms just weren't going away. July-ish, I still wasn't feeling well. And when I reported it to the doctor... As much as he's wonderful, he would attribute it to anxiety or some kind of trauma, post-trauma. But I knew it was more than that. I knew it. I knew I wasn't hungry. I got my smell back, but I wasn't hungry. I'm very concerned about my um, reflexes. I think my reflexes are not as sharp as they should be because I get dizzy mm. or I get brain foggy. And then I, as I started to do more research on what this long haul stuff was. And they had names for it. Had name, finally had names for it. That's when I started to say, well, maybe there's some legitimacy in what I'm feeling. Maybe I'm not hypochondriacal because I was started to blame myself and think that I was a hypochondriac. Diana was suffering from what we now call long haul COVID. Early studies show that at least 10% of COVID patients, but possibly a lot more, continue to suffer lingering effects of the illness. But because COVID is still so new, there's not clear medical guidance on how to treat long haulers. There's really nothing that anyone can do. There's no, you know, there's nothing. I, I, if you looked at my counter by my kitchen, where all my supplements are, it looks like the wellness aisle at Whole Foods. <laughs> I have 
probably 30, 35 supplements that I take. I've been taking. Wow. Yeah. I take everything. What's it like living with that? It's hard. It's hard because I, um, there's a wonderful Yiddish expression, a word called fetching, complaining, fetching. I don't want to fetch, but there's days I'm just very tired. I guess there's a trauma. I know that's had some impact on me. I'm sure it has for the folks who were in, you know, intubations and things like that. Definitely. I'm sure the folks in nursing homes who couldn't see people, it's had trauma. It's had trauma. There's trauma. Omar Bilotti was under stress last year, well before the pandemic hit. Omar had come to Vermont in 2019 as a refugee from Burundi. His wife had died at a refugee camp there, just after the birth of his youngest child. And he believed that in America, his family's luck might change. Hello, Omar. Omar speaks Swahili. Last month, he talked to our reporter, Ellie French, through an interpreter. Where I come from, I know that I was in a bad situation back in Africa. Life wasn't easy, but it became even worse. Instead of even giving me a room to breathe, I felt like this is even worse for what I was living before. Omar has six kids. At first, they lived in a four-bedroom apartment in Winooski with help from the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program. But the aid money ran out after three months. Omar works full-time in a manufacturing plant, but his wages weren't enough to cover the bills. I went to ALB, which is the African Association Living in Vermont. I spoke to them. I called my uh, case manager at the settlement office. They didn't do anything. So I didn't know what to do. So I stayed like that for six months. The family had to move multiple times. One apartment was condemned. Another one caught fire. And then COVID hit. Omar's family moved into a hotel as part of a state program to keep homeless people sheltered during the pandemic. It was really hard because I thought maybe it was going to be just be the hotel maybe for a week and then I go back home or maybe I find another house. But things became even more complicated. For three months, the family moved around to four different hotels. Omar's kids were in school. But he said they spent lots of that time homesick. That just added to the stress. Living in a hotel on this unusual time is not easy. I was living in a hotel, especially the hotel, which is, uh, I think, Motel 6, which is just behind the school. Uh, it's not a very good hotel. There's another one next to it, I think, Motel, like he couldn't remember the name. He said that it was even worse. A lot of people... In the elevator, a lot of people in the stairs, it is not safe. And we were all sick, me and my kids. There's a time where we were all sick, but we couldn't do anything about it. We were just like drinking, like home remedy, you know, those drinks from Africa that we know about. We were all sick in the house, coughing, fever, everything. Nothing was seems to work in that house. The frustration of me being new and not having a house, it became like a reality. I started like crying, I almost lose my mind. But as a dad, I was trying to be strong and to show my kid that we need to be strong and we're going to overcome through this together. 
Even sometimes I was going to the bathroom and cry there. I didn't want to cry in front of my kids because I didn't want to show them that I'm really affected about this. When I'm with them, I smile and do like nothing is happening. But inside me, it was really hurting me. Eventually, Omar got help from the Champlain Valley Office of Economic Opportunity, or CVOEO. The family is back living in an apartment in Winooski. The school has been sending home gift cards, and Omar's also receiving food stamps. He says without the help, he's not sure how they would have made it through the year. I want you to tell this story so people might know exactly what new American access especially not knowing a language, not knowing which door to knock to, which resources to go and look for. It's really hard. For me, if it wasn't CVOU, I could have been like right now in a hotel or I could, maybe my kids who I couldn't have even my kids right now because everybody was under stress. Now that's when I feel like I, I am, I'm living. Before I wasn't living. I was living under stress. But now I can breathe. I can smile. I can even talk to my kids, sit down and eat together. I feel good about myself compared to before. Julie Brisson lives in an apartment building in St. Johnsbury. She has steady housing, but this year her stress has come from seeing too much of her own space. I happen to live in senior housing, and I'm, I'm one of the younger ones. Our oldest person's 97, so we're ultra careful. I'm, like, I don't have any of my friends from the outside world come here, even my local friends. Just because, you know, you don't really know where everybody's been. And that's, I think, one of the challenges here. You have to take people at face value, like wearing your mask, you're socially distancing, didn't go to Super Bowl party, did you? You know, and it's a crazy way to live. Julie's disabled. Back in 2015, she survived a serious bacterial infection that left her lower body permanently injured. She's 61, but she lives in senior housing because it's designed for people who use wheelchairs and walkers. With my health issues, a friend of mine that's an RN says, Julie, you get this, you're going to die. I was like, oh, well, thank you. (laughs) But she said, you know, likely end up on a ventilator and all this. This this was at the beginning. And so she kind of terrified me into staying in the house. Julie knew early on that when health officials were talking about extra precautions for people with high-risk conditions, they were talking about people like her. What she didn't know was that over the summer, she would get a new diagnosis. Julie's doctor told her in August that she had breast cancer. I was like, Julie, only you. You get necrotizing fasciitis and you almost die. And it leaves you disabled, unable to work. Then you get breast cancer during a pandemic. So I see this commercial where people were like, remember the moment you found out you had cancer and you see like people sobbing and families hugging. And well, number one, I had to go through it, you know, all this medical stuff by yourself. And I don't know, I felt a like calmness. I mean, I trusted my surgeon, you know, he's been my doctor forever, but I think it was just like, well, if the, COVID doesn't get me, maybe the breast cancer will, or if that gets me, well, at least I won't have COVID. It was like this very strange, my emotions are stunted. My warmth and empathy kind of went on vacation for a while. 
I had to go through all this. I have really supportive friends and, and friends, as I said, that are in the medical you know, community, but you have to go to your appointment alone. You have to go to day surgery alone. You have to go get your results from pathology reports alone. And this compared to people dying alone or living in nursing homes alone is, is nothing, but it's still challenging because you really, you're on your own. Julie got a mastectomy in November, right when the second wave of COVID in Vermont was ramping up. Two days after she got home from surgery, Governor Phil Scott announced a ban on multi-household gatherings. Julie went into total isolation. My world got so small because of COVID, but then it got even smaller. I was really kind of nervous coming home. I didn't want anybody to breathe on me. I was really, really, really nervous at that point about being exposed to COVID because my system was fighting this or healing. And I was really afraid that my immunity would be down so low that I would get get COVID. You know, I alternate from like dark moments to being okay. I do a lot of puzzles. I could recite episodes of Law and Order Special Victims Unit, but I find I have to be doing something. I don't just sit in the quiet anymore. There's something, there's music, VPR, texting somebody, watching TV, but I I don't ever just sit in silence. Has that changed in the past year? Yes. It's just like, I I feel like if I stop for a second, then I'm going to think too much. What happens if you think too much? Uh, sometimes it's just like paralyzing, don't do anything. Like, oh, I should get up and do this and I just sit. Or I eat crap or I don't eat at all. You know, so I, I try to keep myself going. You know, the Northeast Kingdom is pretty dark, but every time the sun goes out, I go outside. Even if it's five minutes, I throw on my coat and I run downstairs and I take my mask off and I breathe in air and and sun. And um, now that it's lighter um, later, that helps. It's really tough to be depressed and by yourself when it's dark at 3.30, quarter or four in the afternoon, because night starts then and it's really long. Lately, she's felt some hope. She sees the Biden administration's pandemic response and the vaccine rollout as positive signs. And she's been watching a neighbor's dog. She finds that small changes to her routine can have a huge impact on her mental health. I mean, you cannot look at this dog's face and not be happy. And it's like he rescued me. So I spent a lot of time not sleeping and feeling like crap and being worried. And finally, I just was like, Julie, snap out of this. You know, one of the things they tell you with people with cancer is outlook. You know, if you're sitting here thinking about how awful everything is, you know, um, that's really not going to be successful to your recovery. What scared me after the mastectomy, I'm like, how many of these bullets am I going to dodge? And then you wonder, why am I still here? I got to have a purpose and what the hell is it? You know, I've been wondering that now for like four or five years, and I find it here or there with people I connect with and things. But 
still you have this overriding, okay, like big guy, can I get a sign of what I'm supposed to do with this like life you've given me? So I try not to be awful and I try to help people and I try not to waste my chances I've been given. Because I know, especially right now, there's 400,000 people who didn't have that chance. For Ray Rappold, the fall wave of infections and the governor's gathering ban were both reminders of the grief she had been feeling all year. Ray's husband, Mike, was one of the first Vermonters to die from COVID back in March. You know, we're coming up. It's 11 months this month, and it's coming up the anniversary of this horrible thing that happened to us. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're we're struggling with each milestone, each event, this Valentine's this weekend. I just, oh, I tried to go into a store to buy my grandchildren something for Valentine's, and it just, like, most of the cards there, of course, are not for children. They're for husbands, wives. Uh, it's just always a kick in the pants where we are right now, and uh, still very, very sad. Mike was a devoted husband. He loved to ski, and he and Ray had both worked together at sporting goods companies for about 20 years before they got together. They each had three sons from previous marriages, and when Ray found out in November that there would be new restrictions on interstate travel, she knew it meant her family couldn't come together to grieve. You know, when I'm alone in this house, I'm alone. You know, there's nobody's allowed to come here. You know, my sons all live out of state. So the restrictions for me, you know, where the governor said, if you live alone, you can have one family come to visit you, but they got to be in state or they've got to quarantine. I mean, my kids can't come here and, and then go home and quarantine. They've got jobs to do. And, and so it's been hell. You know, Christmas alone, Thanksgiving alone. Uh, and I can't go to them because. I do have a job, too, and I can't come home and quarantine for two weeks. So it's just, it's been hell. Ray said the family met up for a small ceremony in September. She hasn't seen her three sons since then. And, you know, I need them. I'm, I'm getting ready to put my house on the market. I can't stay here. I cannot take care of this house by myself. I'm 24 miles from my work job. And, you know, and, you know, Mike, if it was a bad day, like last Tuesday, he would have driven me to work. And, uh, you know, I don't have that luxury anymore. So it was just, I didn't go to work that day. No, it's just, uh, <laughs> Did you think it would take this long? No. Did I think it would take this long? I never in my wildest dreams would think that we would still be where we are. Never. Ray said that despite all the frustration, she supports the governor's health guidelines, in part because she knows what's really at stake. You know, he's doing what is necessary, and I... I commend him for it. it. Yes, it hurts terribly because it does restrict my family. And not not everybody is in the same boat <laughs> that I am. But I don't expect special privileges. Last April, Scott instituted another policy that on the 19th of every month, the same date as Vermont's first COVID deaths in March, flags would fly at half-staff. So Ray has started her own ritual. I went out and took pictures of the flag at half staff. I tried to get different locations every month on the 19th. Mike would have loved that honor of having that flag at half staff. He would have loved that. 
Ray sent me these pictures. And what's obvious from looking at them now is how much time has passed. You see the seasons change. In one picture from September, the leaves are turning orange and red behind the flag at the War Memorial in Jeffersonville. In December, there's snow piled up at the Cambridge Fire Department. And soon, the picture will look the same as it did last April, the first time the flags were lowered. It'll have been an entire year. You're listening to a special VT Digger podcast as part of our Virus in Vermont series. We're highlighting dozens of different perspectives on the pandemic and stories throughout the month of March. You can find the full series at vtdigger.org virus. Our weekly podcast is The Deeper Dig. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll hear new episodes as soon as they land. I'm Mike Doherty. I produce this piece along with interviews by Ellie French and Katie Jickling. Stevia Mukozo, translated for Omar Bilotti. We use music by Blue Dot Sessions. If you missed part one about the people across the state who stepped up for their communities when the crisis hit, look for it in your podcast feed or find it at vtdigger.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>